Revelation chapter 2, which we just read. Revelation chapter 2 and verses 18 to 29. Revelation 2 verses 18 to 29 is our our text for this evening. And uh, we're looking at Jesus' letter to the church in Thyatira. And we're thinking about it under the theme, More Tolerant Than Jesus. More Tolerant Than Jesus. In March 1966, when the Beatles were perhaps at the height of their fame and success, uh, John Lennon, one of the band members, described the group as more popular than Jesus. Uh, The remark caused widespread outrage, delight and debate in equal measure and famously resulted in Christians in some parts of the United States gathering together to burn Beatles records in disgust. Uh, Lennon's remark may have been glib and off the cuff, or he may have genuinely believed that the Beatles at that point had a bigger influence in the world than the Lord Jesus. We don't know. It could be debated whether someone is more popular than Jesus, though from an eternal perspective, no king and no kingdom will have more followers and more power than Christ. It is certainly possible, however, For someone to be more tolerant than Jesus. It's possible to put up with things or to celebrate things that Jesus does not and will not. That was the issue for the church in Thyatira 2000 years ago. And essentially friends this is the issue for the church in the United Kingdom and in Ireland and in nations like ours today. How much do we tolerate What should we tolerate? Uh, And my own sense for what it's worth, my own sense is that our culture isn't even really willing to talk in terms of tolerance anymore. Uh, About 10 years ago, Don Carson wrote a book called The Intolerance of Tolerance. Uh, It's a very good book. I think one of the lines that he had in this book was he summing up the kind of attitude of the non-Christian culture. It was, we are sick of these intolerant Christians and we aren't going to tolerate them anymore. And at that point, tolerance was kind of the buzzword doing the rounds. My own sense is that we're not even really talking about tolerance anymore. What we're talking about now in our society is just acceptance and equality. There doesn't seem to be space for simply tolerating someone or something. Either we wholeheartedly celebrate someone or something, or it's just assumed that we, if we don't celebrate them, we must then hate them and wish them harm. That's the sort of polarized society we live in now. But not long ago, tolerance was the buzzword in our culture. And the question was, are Christians tolerant people? And when that question is being asked, it's usually about the Christian opinion on sexuality in general and homosexuality in particular and the demands of the LGBT lobby. Do Christians, does the church tolerate same-sex marriage? Will the church welcome and accept people who claim to both love and worship the Lord Jesus whilst at the same time actively living a homosexual lifestyle? We need to know what the Lord Jesus has to say about what we tolerate and what we don't. And it just so happens that that's almost entirely what Jesus' letter to the church in Thyatira is all about. 
And isn't it interesting that of the seven letters, this is the letter in the middle. This is the central letter of the seven, and this is the longest letter of the seven. And it's all about what the church and what Jesus, more importantly, tolerates. Addressing a burning issue not only in 90 AD, but also in 2021. We're going to think of uh, this. We're going to study this letter under three headings this evening. We're going to spend most of our time on the second one, so it'll be the, the majority of our time. But first of all, this evening, uh, let's begin with a reminder of Christ's authority. A reminder of Christ's authority, as he does in every letter. Jesus chooses to describe himself in a way that will hit home to the particular church to whom he is writing. If you look at verse 18, notice Jesus describes himself as the Son of God. This is the only time in the, in the seven letters, and I, may, I might be mistaken about this, but it might be the only time in the whole book that Jesus is described as the Son of God. It's a title that speaks of Jesus' divine authority, that Jesus himself is God. One of the most popular idols worshipped in Thyatira was the Greek god Apollo who was said to be the son of Zeus, and Zeus was considered the greatest of the old Greek gods. And to a city that claimed to worship one of the sons of one of the gods, Jesus declares, I am the son of the one and only God. Jesus also says he has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. Thyatira was not as prominent or popular a city as the first three that we've thought about. Ephesus, Smyrna and Pergamum were all more popular and important cities than Thyatira. Thyatira was an industrial city. Wool, linen and especially bronze and metalwork were produced there. You might remember Lydia in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16 we meet Lydia and Lydia was from Thyatira. She was a dealer in uh, purple cloth. Uh, But Thyatira was also known for its bronze and metalwork. And quite possibly some of the first people to hear the words of this letter, they were men who worked day in and day out amongst flames of fire, working on bronze, using it for all kinds of equipment. And Jesus here uses those familiar images to impress upon them his own purity. The fact that he is eternal And all-powerful that he is the judge of all. And so this is a word of challenge from Jesus right at the beginning of the letter. To anyone in Thyatira tempted to compromise with the world. Jesus is the all-seeing, all-knowing, almighty, everlasting son of God. With eyes more pure and powerful than those flames of fire. All that to say friends that on the day that he finally returns... No one will care about Apollo, the son of Zeus. No one will care about John Lennon and the Beatles or who said what on the Stephen Nolan show last Monday morning. On the day Jesus finally returns, it won't matter who became leader of the DUP after Arlene Foster. Jesus is the judge. He sees all, he knows all, and he will be the judge of all. It's also great comfort In this for those who were faithful in Thyatira. Look at verse 19. Jesus says. I know your works. Your love and faith and service. And patient endurance. 
Jesus is going to have some strong criticism for some people in Thyatira. But he also commends those in Thyatira who have been faithful to him. Jesus says, I've seen that. He says that there have been some who have been patiently enduring. It's the same words he used for some in Ephesus. Very different church. But they and some in Thyatira had patiently endured. And Jesus commends them for that. He says, I've seen you doing that. I'm pleased with you for that. In fact, one writer says that Jesus' description of himself having feet like burnished bronze, as much as it's a challenge and it's, uh, it's a word to, to, to make people stop and think, it's also a word of encouragement. Uh, some writers think that this is maybe Jesus hinting back to Daniel's three friends in the, in the fiery furnace and how Jesus was with them in that fiery furnace. He was with them in that testing moment of trial. And similarly, he will be with the faithful in Thyatira during their trial. Jesus also says in verse 19, your latter works exceed the first. So here's a church that over time has become all ever more eager and concerned to serve Jesus. To to be busy looking after one another and witnessing to the world. And again, Jesus says, I'm pleased with that. I'm glad about that. All of this to say, friends, Jesus knows and makes judgments about all his churches everywhere, no matter their size or challenges or situation. Of the churches we've looked at so far, Thyatira was in the least important, least popular city. And yet they get the longest letter from Jesus. No church is unimportant to Jesus. He sees and knows everything about all his churches. And that means that when it comes to what the church teaches, practices, tolerates and celebrates. We must always remember friends that it is Jesus' opinion that matters most. Not that of prime ministers, first ministers or celebrities. Not our neighbours or other denominations or organisations. Not that of our families or employers. The one whose verdict we are to be most concerned with is the verdict of the Son of God whose eyes are like a flaming fire. And equally, as we patiently endure, as we try to remain faithful and loving and eager in our serving, we can be encouraged that Jesus stands with us Unmoving with feet like burnished bronze. He's, in, he's with us in whatever flames of trial we pass through. Just as the church in Thyatira did. Just as Daniel's three friends did. Should you face a firing at work. Or disowning from your family. Or the hatred and suspicion of those who used to be your friends. The Lord Jesus stands with you. The one who had all men hate him, spit on him and ultimately crucify him. He knows how it feels. He's told us that if they hated him, they will hate us also. He's told us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And so as we consider what the church should tolerate and what it shouldn't, friends, we must begin with Jesus. We must begin with a... With a right vision and understanding of his glory and his power and his interest and his authority over our church. A reminder of Christ's authority. 
But secondly, and as I say, we'll spend most of our time on this this evening, the, the reality of Christ's intolerance. The reality of Christ's intolerance. Contrary to what some people would have us believe today, there are things that Jesus does not tolerate. Look at verse 20. But I have this against you. In other words, there is something in Thyatira that I'm not happy with. I have this against you, that you tolerate, there's our word, you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Here it is, friends, in black and white, there are some things that Jesus just won't tolerate. He says that there is someone in Thyatira teaching, encouraging what is wicked and sinful. And rather than disciplining her, rather than confronting her, the church has been tolerating her. Allowing it, excusing it, ignoring it. Jesus calls this woman Jezebel. It's very unlikely that that was her actual name. But Jesus is using the name of one of the worst villains in the Old Testament to emphasize how dangerous and wicked this woman was. Jezebel, some of you may know, was the wife of King Ahab. You can read about her in 1 Kings uh, 16 onwards. Uh, She was the wife of King Ahab and really she was the puppet master. She was the power behind Ahab's throne. She wasn't from Israel herself. She was from a land called Sidon. And she brought with her from Sidon worship of a false god named Baal. And she brought that influence of Baal worship into Israel. Baal was believed to be the god of fertility. uh, The god who would bring new life to human beings and to the land in particular. And so this belief was an excuse for sexual intercourse at places of Baal worship in some instances. And friends, Jesus describes this woman in Thyatira as Jezebel. Because she is finding excuses for the exact same sins. Look at verse 20. She calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now why does Jesus highlight these two things? Why why is it that this is, why are these things the issue? Food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. Well, the most influential places in Thyatira, as in most of the cities we've looked at already, were the guilds. The guilds, and I've mentioned the guilds in passing in previous weeks, but maybe I should say a little bit more about them this evening. The guilds were something of a cross between a trade union and a social club. A trade union and an orange hall, or a trade union and maybe a rugby club or something like that. And in that time and place, if your father was, say, a banker or a blacksmith, probably his father had been too, and probably you would go into the family business And there would be a guild for the banking families. There would be a guild for the blacksmith families. There would be a guild for the the linen merchants or the wool merchants. You all had your guilds. And because of the nature of family business, many of them probably included your extended family. The Roman government certainly did not provide the security net of welfare and pension schemes that we have today. And so you paid into your guild essentially for your retirement fund and your social security. 
The problem was that each of these guilds had patron gods and goddesses. They worshipped idols. And so as the annual general meeting of the trade guild began, they would pray to their idol. And after a few hours of eating and drinking and everyone letting loose, they indulged in whatever kinds of sexual intercourse they liked, whether it was wife swapping, homosexuality, orgies, whatever it might be. Now imagine you're in a guild and you become a Christian. Suddenly you think, I can't pay into an organisation that worships Apollo the son of Zeus instead of Jesus the son of God. I can't attend a meeting where the food is offered to an idol and then my colleague's wife is offered to me afterwards. I can't be a part of this. On the other hand, my whole family is in this guild. My career path, my retirement are dependent on this guild. What do I do? And this Jezebel had the answers. Her answer was, you can have both. Of course, meet with your church on Sundays or the Lord's Day, if that's what you want to call it. But there's no reason you can't also go along to your guild meeting on a Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday night and do whatever's being done. Jesus understands as long as you worship him at some point in the week. And the church was tolerating this, allowing this Jezebel to gain a following. And you see, this is how the evil one works. He won't just come into the church and have someone stand up and start preaching false teaching. Most of the time, it's married in with, you know, well, you know, we have to make some allowances. We have to find a way of, of accommodating and tolerating this culture. We, we, Jesus doesn't expect us to give up everything for him. And so it's, it's twisted and it's interwoven with some of the pressures and norms of society. To the point where it is what is preached and believed in the church. The church was tolerating this Jezebel. In verse 24 Jesus refers to this false teaching as the deep things of Satan. And again, it's highly unlikely that this woman came along and said, this week I want to speak to you about the deep things of Satan. More likely she had gained a reputation as talking about the deep things of God or the deep things of Jesus. It's probably how people referred to her. You know, she knows the really deep things about God. Jesus calls it out for what it is. He said she's actually talking about something that is satanic. She's speaking twisted, deceptive lies from Satan. Maybe she told them that, you know, your Christian faith is a spiritual thing. It's not about the physical. So whatever food you eat or whatever sexual activity you engage in, it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect your soul. Maybe she told them that doing the kinds of things that were done at guild meetings would only make them realize all the more the love and uh, amazing grace of Jesus and how affirming and loving Jesus was. Rather than challenge this, the church tolerated this. Does any of this sound familiar, friends? Does, does it sound at all relevant to the pressures and dilemmas facing Christians in our culture today? Just like this Jezebel and Thyatira, people are using what sound like deep, insightful, sophisticated arguments in Northern Ireland in 2021 to excuse and celebrate their sin. 
A couple of weeks ago I posted on social media about the proposed ban on gay conversion therapy and I said on, social, I said on Facebook what I've said to you, that it's a veiled attempt to prevent churches from preaching the gospel. And I had a friend reply, criticising any church or church leader that, quote, engages in a process which fails to facilitate a journey that considers a balanced discovery of self. It fails to facilitate a journey that considers a balanced discovery of self. That sounds very deep, doesn't it? Very sophisticated, thought through, tolerant. It's twisted false teaching. A balanced discovery of self. Here's what you and I need to know about ourselves. We're sinners. We're spiritually lost souls by nature. Whatever comes naturally to us. Be it the urge to lose our tempers. To steal. To lie. To cheat. To sleep with whoever we happen to find attractive. That nature is fundamentally corrupt. We need to be born again. We need to look on to Jesus. We need his spirit to intervene and make us new people with new desires. And then we need to live in obedience to the word of God. And so back to that question that I asked at the beginning of the sermon. Does the church welcome anyone and everyone? Yes, Jesus does welcome anyone and everyone. He welcomes us to change. The church does welcome anyone and everyone. We welcome you to change. Because who all of us are, whether inside or outside the church, who all of us are by nature, black, white, young or old, heterosexual, homosexual, whatever label you want to use, we are broken, sinful people. And it just so happens that you and I live in a culture that tolerates the same things that Thyatira tolerated. Sexual immorality. It just so happens that our culture tolerates that. Other societies don't. They tolerate other things that the Bible says are wrong. Tim Keller is a good example of this in one of his books. He says if we were living in an Anglo-Saxon culture. So if we were living in Britain as it was a thousand years ago say. They wouldn't have tolerated. They wouldn't have accepted sexual immorality. But they would have tolerated other things that Christians would have been getting in trouble for telling them about. They would have tolerated things like going out and fighting someone to death if he insulted you or tried to take some of your land. Anglo-Saxons would have found it very offensive and very intolerant for Christians to claim that they should turn the other cheek and forgive their enemies. That's not who we are. We're proud, powerful men with a natural urge to exert our power over those who dishonor us. Point is, friends, the things that our society happens to tolerate today, someday will change. What our culture tolerates and celebrates today will have changed to something else tomorrow. And rather than turn in whatever direction the world happens to be turning in at this moment in time, we are to remain faithful to the unchanging word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And and when someone rises to prominence in the church or when someone who has made a profession of faith in the church wants to live like the world, act like the world, compromise with the world, the church must not tolerate it. 
We must do what Jesus did in Thyatira. We must call them to repent. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent. Notice, by the way, the incredible patience of Jesus. I gave her time to repent. This false teacher, this Jezebel. As serious as her sin was, Jesus allocated time for her to repent. That is instructive for how the church is to deal with people who their profession of faith doesn't match up with their lifestyle. We don't come, out, we don't come down on them like a ton of bricks. We don't disown them and, uh, you know, and just push them out immediately. We point out their sin. We show them from scripture with love and patience how they must change and repent. We give them time to repent. But Jesus says... She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. The word sexual immorality, by the way, there, it refers to any and all sexual sin outside of where sex, sexual activity is permitted in the bounds of heterosexual marriage. She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Her children there means most likely her followers, the people who have gone along with this. This is the verdict, friends, of Jesus who searches mind and heart. He will strike down dead those who refuse to repent of sin. That's ultimately a warning about eternal punishment in hell. Here's a warning for our church and every church today. Do not tolerate false teaching. Don't make excuses for lifestyles that the Bible clearly says are not compatible with obedience to Jesus. And I, and I, I do feel compelled to say this. I'm not saying this in judgment on anyone else. But to be frank, a lot of churches in our country have already made too many compromises. Babies get baptised whose parents aren't Christians. People live together, their names stay on church rules. Divorce is excused on flimsy grounds. There are some, of a limited number of biblical grounds for divorce, but there are flimsy grounds for divorce that are excused away. It's been like this for decades in some churches. Women are promoted into positions of church leadership that the Bible says are to be occupied only by men. Why? Because churches don't want to offend. It doesn't seem very loving. If we take those names off, how much of a church will we have left? Why do we think that churches who compromise on these other issues will stand strong on the gay issue? Or the abortion issue? And let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Let's not think that we couldn't make the same mistakes. Let's not think that we're immune from the pressures of one kind or another on individuals or even on congregations. Loved ones, some of you might have to get fired. Some of you, the family reunions might get very awkward. Not because you're not still willing to treat people with love and respect, which of course we must do but because they question and antagonize and accuse. Some of us, our names might end up in the paper or on the BBC website next to words like intolerant, out of touch, homophobic. 
But we must not tolerate what Jesus does not tolerate. We cannot celebrate what Jesus does not celebrate. And so we must deal with the reality of Christ's intolerance for sin and false teaching. This is a heavy word and a demanding word, but I want to finish hopefully with some encouragement this evening. We thought about a reminder of Christ's authority. We've thought about the reality of Christ's intolerance. But thirdly and finally, and more briefly, notice the reassurance that Christ's people will triumph. The reassurance that Christ's people will triumph. Look what Jesus says in verse 24. Excuse me. Verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. I love those words of Jesus there, only hold fast. Uh, we sometimes, with, with, the greatest, with the best intentions, sometimes Christians can come to the Bible or come to church expecting to find five things we need to do this week to be better Christians. You know, five ways to be better parents, five ways to be better evangelists, whatever it is. What does Jesus want you to do this week? What does he want us to do every week? Only hold fast. Only hold fast. In other words, just stick at it. Just keep going. Just hold your ground. Hold your position. Hold your convictions. That's what Jesus wants his pastors to do. That's what he wants Christian teachers to do. Christian doctors and nurses and farmers and students. And parents and grandparents. Hold your position. Some of the greatest military victories in history. Haven't been about gaining ground. They've been about holding ground. The Battle of Britain in the summer of 1940 was about holding on to our country. It was one of the most important victories in the Second World War and no territory changed hands. Sometimes the Christian life is about holding on to what we have, the faith that we have, the gospel that we have, despite the intense pressure put upon us. And if we do, look what Jesus says in verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Jesus is echoing Psalm 2 there. We'll sing Psalm 2 in a few moments. Uh, And he's actually telling us something remarkable about our future. He's saying that if we're faithful to Jesus, we will rule with Jesus. Psalm 2 talks about God's Messiah, Christ Ruling the nations with this rod of iron that Jesus mentions here. But Jesus says in fact his people will rule with him. We will judge with him. We will receive authority alongside him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2. Do you not know that the saints, that's all believers, will judge the world. We will judge the world. Right now the world sits in judgment over us. One day, friends, Christians will sit in judgment over the world. And this is not to sound vindictive. This is not about one day getting our own back. Nothing of the sort. But the day will come when sinners have run out of time to repent. I gave her time to repent. 
And when that day comes, it won't just be Jesus' hand that swings the scepter of judgment, friends. Our hands will be on that scepter as well, so to speak. (coughs) And Jesus says the nations will be dashed to pieces. They will be judged and eternally punished. Here's the warning this evening, not just for churches, but for any individual, any man, woman, or boy or girl, tolerating anything in our lives that goes against the word of God. It's easy to perhaps broad brush other groups in society, but if we're willing to excuse any sin, if we try to make even to ourselves what seem like deep and well thought through arguments for allowing sin in our lives, remember that Jesus and his church will one day exercise authority over all the nations. Remember that Jesus will one day give to each one of us according to our works. Remember, friends, that Jesus is coming soon. For those who do hold fast, who do remain faithful to Jesus, what does he have for us? Look at verse 28. What will we get from Jesus? Verse 28. I will give him the morning star. In chapter 22, at the end of Revelation, verse 19, Jesus says that he himself is the bright morning star. It's a reference to an Old Testament prophecy in Numbers 24 that described one of the descendants of the sons of Judah of Israel as a lion of a tribe of Judah and as a bright morning star. What will we get for remaining faithful to Jesus, friends? We will get Jesus. We will get to be with him. We will get to see him. We will get to rule with him. We will get to live with him and with each other forever. And that will be enough. That will be worth whatever pressure we had to endure in this life. I can promise you today, whatever your sexual orientation, whatever your sins, whatever your anxieties, whatever your trials, if you hold fast to Jesus, if you remain faithful to Jesus, then one day getting to be with Jesus will be worth it all. It will be worth whatever you gave up in this life, whatever you denied yourself, whatever rejection or hatred you experienced, to be with Jesus will be worth it all. And so may we hold fast what we have, friends, until he comes. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.